0: listening to the podcast of Anthem Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, visit us online at anthemcolumbia.com. All right, good morning, guys. Good to see you. I am one of the few Van Voors left standing at the moment. 5 out of 8 of us are flu ridden, so I spent yesterday taking care of a lot of sick people. So, good to be here. <laughs> Good to have a break from that. Um be praying for us, <laughs> praying for my wife in particular, who is one of the sick ones who is a fallen soldier at the moment. So praying she recovers, because uh, if both adults go down, <laughs> it gets real messy real fast. Um, so today, Stan said, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 2. So that's where you want to open your apps or your Bibles. Um, but to set the context before we jump in... Um, It's always good to know where you're at before you just jump into a book of the Bible or before you memorize verses. I would encourage you to understand paragraphs. Lots of people have coffee cups with verses out of context and they don't know what they mean. Um, Understand paragraphs. The part of this Bible read-through even people are doing, um, it's good to understand the Bible, to understand where things fit in. Uh, You can get a good understanding of a frog's heart by taking it out and looking at it, but you kill the frog in the process. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you have a dead frog. You really get You really see his heart. <laughs> and uh, you can really understand verses if you take them out and really turn them over, but uh, you might kill the whole context in the process. So understand paragraphs, not just memorize verses. So I want to give us a, a context of where we're at. So if you remember, uh, Paul comes in hot on this letter, right? No, hey, love you guys. It's great to see it. He's just like, boom, apostle, jumps right into it. And so I want to show you the verses. Um, in chapter 1 verse 7 and 9 he just comes in and he addresses the issue right out of the gate he says there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of christ but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you let him be accursed and you remember stan pointed out to us that that word is anathema in greek it is literally paul coming in hot full of passion saying if someone tells you something other than what we told you May God damn that person. That is the literal use of what he is saying. It's serious. That's the tone for this letter. And you know how you sometimes say stuff and you're like, or you Facebook something and then you back off it, but you already pushed send on it. You're like, ugh. <laughs> you're like, maybe that was too much. He doubles down, he's like, no, no, no. As I have said before, now I say it again. Just in case you think I overstated it, I didn't. I meant exactly what I said. I didn't say it too strongly. He says in verse nine, as we have said it before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. He doubles down, he comes back, he circles around and says it again. So just in case you thought that was too strong and maybe you don't like your apostles to use words like goddamn, damn, Paul's the kind of apostle who's going to say that because that's what's true. That is the application of that particular phrase. That's the right way to use it. After he says this, He summarizes the whole point of the letter, verse 11 and 12. He says, for I would have you know. So this is the one thing he wants you to know. If you understand anything, know this. I would have you know that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I didn't make this up. It didn't come from me. A bunch of us didn't get together and figure this out. This wasn't something we made up. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ. That is the big idea of the entire letter. This is not something people made up. This is something God revealed. Revelation comes down. Speculation goes up. If we all get together, me and Colton, and be like, what do you think God's like? And we come up with a religion. That's speculation. We try and throw our best guess up at heaven and hope it sticks. Revelation comes down. God reveals himself and tells us exactly what is true. And that is the gospel that Paul had that's what he told the Galatians, that's what they believed, and then people came along and tried to tell him that he was wrong or that that was something Paul made up. That's the context of the whole letter. So why this matters, and the big idea for this morning, is I think best captured by something Martin Luther said, and I'll put it up on the screen for you. Religion is the default mode of the human heart. Religion is the default mode of the human heart and when Martin Luther uses the phrase religion what he means in this context is works righteousness being a good person thinking that that's what god ultimately wants is you have goods you have bads and as long as the balance at the end of your life is more good than bad that's how you win at life that's what we all default default towards that is our default mode the second we st- stop looking at jesus we default to religion That's what we do. It makes sense to us, right? It makes sense. You do a good job, you get a good paycheck. You do a bad job, you get fired. We all get that, right? We don't want the guy who's sitting next to us in the cube next to us who's just lollygagging on YouTube all day to get a raise. It doesn't make sense to us. We don't like that. It's justice. It makes sense to us that we should be rewarded based on our performance. But having that mindset always ends in pride or despair. That's the only two options, right? If you view life that way, that it's all about a ledger, keeping the balance the right direction. You're either proud, yay, I'm doing it, or you're despair. Ah, failed again. Those are your only two options. So you live either your days super proud, like I did it, I read my Bible, I had a healthy breakfast instead of something bad for me. I didn't eat a muffin, which is essentially just cake. <laughs> like, who are we kidding? It's not who got who, who convinced us that a muffin is not cake? <laughs> it's just cake. That's all it is. You're having cake for breakfast. You might as well have ice cream. No, no, that's cereal. <laughs> that's essentially what most of your cereals are. Cereal is. It's just ice cream. Um, or a blizzard, essentially, is what it is. Um, so anyways, pride or despair. Those are your only two options. You're either really happy, you're killing it, or you lay your head on your bed. You're like, I lost my temper again today. I looked at that thing online again today. I gossiped about that coworker again today. Those are your only two options. You're either depressed because I can't do it, or you're super proud and walking around with your chest up like, look at me just killing it at life. Tiger's blood running through my veins. I'm winning. But Paul goes into his, like, so he's in a stretch here when we get into chapter two. He started by giving us his own God story. Remember that from Luke last week, shared that. And he wants to use that as his first kind of example of, this truth that religion is how we default. That was Paul's default. Just by nature, he understood if I can win at life, then I'm gonna be favorable with God. And so he was running harder than anyone. Remember Luke even pointed out he used words like zealous, like I was passionate <laughs> about being better. I wanted to have all the blue ribbons and I wanted Colton to have no blue ribbons because I wanted them to all be, be mine. <laughs> I wanna beat him, I wanna win at life. That was Paul's default and it resulted in pride. He was the smartest guy he knew. And no one was gonna tell Paul that he was wrong because who could? Who could tell Paul that he was wrong? Is that, is that the case for some of us? Sometimes we're the smartest person we know on whatever topic we're talking about. <laughs> Who's gonna tell us we're wrong? We're the experts. And if religion had the power to save anybody, it would have saved Paul because he was the best at it ever. So however good you think you are this morning, Paul is better than you. And he wants you to know that. (laughs) He's not ashamed, he wants to come through the front door and be like, I don't care how good you think you are, Luke, I'm better than you. But he wants to establish that fact because he wants you to know that he would gladly throw all of his blue ribbons away for what he has found in Jesus. So if the best person that's ever lived among us needs Jesus, the rest of us (laughs) clearly do as well. And so Paul was running around arrogant and then he met Jesus. And all the stuff that he was proud of just a second before, the second before he got knocked off his horse, he was so proud of himself. The second he got knocked down, all that stuff that he was proud of was the stuff that he was just embarrassed about. Just a minute before it changed everything. Meeting Jesus changed everything about the way he saw his life. And so Paul is, is example number one. He wants to throw himself under the bus right out of the gate to prove his point. So today in chapter two, that's where we find ourselves. I want to I do all that to say this is the stream of argument he's in. All this is pointing back to the idea that this isn't something he made up because he never would have believed anybody. Paul was dead set on what he was doing until Jesus told him he was wrong. And Jesus was the only person who was gonna be able to tell Paul that he was wrong. And for some of us, that, that was me. That, maybe that's for some of us. Like, Unless Jesus comes and confronts us, we're just gonna keep going along because no person is gonna be able to convince us any differently. So Galatians chapter 2, he wants to give us two stories that kind of show this. So we're going to take them one by one, and then he's going to end by kind of unpacking what this gospel is. He's clarified what it's not through these three stories, through his life and these two stories. But then he's going to end by clarifying exactly what it is. So let's do verses 1 through 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Jesus Christ so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Okay, so let me just summarize the whole gist of this. He's like, this is basically his story. Like, I want to tell you about that one time I went to Jerusalem. That's this anecdote from his life. He's like, so I went to Jerusalem, I didn't go there, I wasn't called to the principal's office. The apostles weren't like, hey, Paul, get in here and give us a report of what you're doing around here. God told him to go to unite with the other apostles. He decides to go. Um, he gets there. He meets with them. He basically shows him his sermon notes, basically what we do at teachers' meeting. Every Thursday we get together. You should know, none of these sermons, this isn't my idea. This is something I set before Stan and Luke, and we, they look it over, and if they don't like it, they don't think it's true, we cut it. And that's true of any sermon that's preached here at SALT or here at Anthem. So just a comfort to you guys should know. But Paul isn't, he puts his sermon notes in front of the apostles and says, here's what I preach when I go around. They all look it over and it says they didn't add anything to it. They're like, yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> and so, and just so you know, like Cephas, like it's weird, Cephas is Peter. Uh, so when you see that, it's just, it's just another, it's his Greek name, Cephas. It means little rock or pebble. Uh, it's my son Rocco is named after the apostle Peter because it means a tiny little a <laughs> tiny little rock. Um, and so they lay it before him. The, the apostles don't add anything to it, and they don't take anything away from Titus. Did you catch that? <laughs> Titus came as a whole person, and he left as a whole person. All of Titus came in the door, and all of Titus walked out the door, <laughs> okay? So they didn't add anything to his message, and they didn't take anything away from Titus, and then they extend the right hand of fellowship and say, Godspeed, get after it, We'll stay here with the Jews. You go get those Gentiles. Let's tell everybody about how awesome Jesus is. That's the point of the story um, that he brings up because he wanted people to know that him and the apostles are all on the same page. So if anybody's coming to you, Galatians, and saying that James and Peter and John have a different message, just know they don't. I talked to them. That's not what they said to me. That's not what we all agreed on. We all agree, but not everybody... Extended the right hand, right? Not everybody was like, good job, guys. You see that in verse 4? Some false brothers slipped in to spy out the freedom that we have in Christ so that they might bring us into slavery. Religious people, people who kind of have that, that Martin Luther, that religious default, if, that's, if this is you, if this is the way it's if infected your thinking, they equate all freedom with sin. Because it could go wrong. It is wrong. Because it could be used or twisted for bad, because freedom could go wrong, it can't be trusted. You can't trust people with freedom. You can't let them have that kind of freedom. Imagine the stuff they'll do if you tell them that Jesus has set them free. Don't sing songs like we sang this morning. Don't tell people they're free. You know what people are going to do if you tell them that? That's a religious understanding because it's based on works. It's based on assuming that the only way you can get people to do anything is if you threaten them. Or that the best way to get people to do stuff is if you're just heavy-handed and say, Zinda, you do this, or you're out. Now now all of a sudden you have a horse and race, you have to do it. But if I say, Zinda, I love you, I think you're great, could you please do this? They don't trust that that'll work. Because what's his incentive now? My love? Who cares about that? I only care about consequences. And a religious understanding of the world always takes that place. So that's what these guys are doing. They're like, they wanted to come in and said they wanted to make them slaves, not their personal slaves. Whoa! (laughs) Sorry. Okay. (laughs) Indigestion. Sorry about that. (laughs) I hope I'm not getting sick. Um, Okay. (laughs) Okay. So they wanted to, they didn't want to make them their personal slaves. They didn't want like you to come home and like do my dishes. They just wanted you to feel heavy. Like it's not fair that I feel despair all the time. I don't like watching you with all your freedom and all your like, woohoo, Jesus, my homeboy. Like they don't like that. So they want you to feel weighed down because I feel weighed down. And that's the way this religiously works itself out is that you want other people to feel bad because you feel bad. And so it's not enough for you to feel it yourself. You need other people to feel the weight of that. And then when they say they don't trust that the gospel that love is enough to motivate good behavior, what they're revealing is that that's what they would do. The reason I say that is because I know that that's what I would do. If I had that kind of freedom, I'd just use it for whatever I wanted. Because they don't trust in a regenerated new heart that actually cares about what God thinks and isn't just motivated by just fear of consequences. Let me see let me show you an example of this in Luke 11:46. Jesus said this. He said Jesus said, "Woe to you lawyers, people who are experts in the law." Um, he said, Woe to you, lawyers, you people who really know the rules, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Your whole goal in life is to make your life harder. But don't come to me looking for help. I gave you help. <laughs> My help to you is that life is really hard. Suck it up, princess. <laughs> like, like, that's the way that they, they just want to make it harder for you. And then they walk away and we're like, You're welcome. <laughs> Like And Jesus says, woe to you people who do that, because all your, your only horse in the race is making other people miserable. And religion always wants other people to be miserable, because they're miserable, and that's how they experience life, that's how they experience God, and they want you to feel that same way. Basically, they're not happy until you're not happy. That would be their bumper sticker. <laughs> when you're driving at work, you'd see their bumper sticker and say, we're not happy until you're not happy. <laughs> you're welcome. That's how they see life. And it always produces envy. Envy, that idea of I, I don't like that you have something that I don't have. I want that. And one way that you can always know that you have this, Paul gives us a clue here. In Romans 12, 15, he writes this, and hopefully this is helpful to you guys. If you, if, if you want to know if you're experiencing life from this kind of religious point of view, here's a diagnostic tool for you. Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Those who have the Spirit, who love Jesus, are happy when things go well with you and are sad when things go poorly with you. Envy flips that script entirely around. Envy rejoices when people weep, and it weeps when people rejoice. If you're struggling with infertility, and you see on Facebook somebody says they're pregnant, and your first response is, that makes me mad, that makes me weep, If you're single, you're desperately wanting to get married, and somebody on Facebook posts a a video of their engagement, and your first response is to weep, to be sad for yourself. Envy has creeped into your heart. It has flipped the script. You can't obey this verse because you've turned it around. And at its worst, you rejoice when bad things happen to people. You see that friend's engagement got broken off, and you kind of clap a little bit. Good, I'm glad, about time. At its darkest, it gets to that point. It's envy. And it's understandable, but it's not okay. As a friend, as a pastor, as, a, as somebody who loves you, it's not okay to feel those things. It's understandable. I get why you would feel that. It's hard to watch other people get the things you want so badly. But you have to understand that The scripture commands you to be happy for them. If they are having happy things, you need to be happy for them. If they're suffering, you need to suffer with them as a friend. You need to overcome envy by faith. Toss the religious understanding aside and embrace freedom and faith that allows you to personally grieve what you're going through without projecting it onto other people. Religion always wants their problems to be somebody else's problem because they don't own it. It has to be your fault that I'm feeling this way. So how did Paul respond to these, this kind of thinking? How did Paul respond to this kind of diagnostic? The people trying to impose their, I feel like a slave, so I want you to feel heavy. He says in verse 5, we did not yield in submission to them even for a moment. Paul is a champion for you guys, for you, for the Galatians, for us. He stood his ground. Thank God for Paul and the faith that God gave him, like, He's doing it for you for us. I didn't yield to them even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. The truth, the purity of the gospel has been preserved for you because Paul stood his ground. He wants you to know that the gospel has to be preserved. It has to be preserved because the default is to go back to religion. The second you take your eyes off of Jesus, the default is to go back. So Paul stood his ground And he purified the gospel, held his ground, said, no, that's not how it works. It's not envy. It's by faith so we can rejoice with other people. We can weep with them because it's not about our personal dog in the fight. Second story, verses 11 through 14, he wants to tell another anecdote. So the first one is, hey, remember that time I went to Jerusalem? This is the story. Hey, remember that time Peter came to Antioch? (laughs) This is that story. Like He kind of has like, you know how you have stories in your head? And like anytime somebody mentions that thing, it just triggers that story for you. Here's a story that he's like, remember that time Peter came to Antioch? So it's going to call him Cephas here, but it's Peter, remember? So verse 11, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came back, when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So you get the gist of this, right? It's junior high. It's jocks and geeks. And uh, it's the cafeteria scene. And you have a certain table. And Peter's fine eating with band geeks until the jocks show up. And then he gets embarrassed, right? Like, that's the gist of this story. (laughs) And Peter uh, is failing to keep his eyes on Jesus. And so he's like, oh, no, what are these people going to think? And so his actions are being determined by what somebody else thinks he should do. And Paul says, that's not right. And you know better, Peter. And he, to his face in front of the whole cafeteria, (laughs) stands him up and is like, Peter, this is wrong. You know that's not true, Peter. What are you doing? This doesn't make any sense. And the reason why Peter is doing this is because when we take our eyes off of Jesus, we default towards religion. And in this case, religion is always concerned with what other people think. It, you have to manage your reputation. You, you have to manage it because what you think of me matters to me, and it says something about me. What Keaton thinks of me matters. So I have to, when Keaton's around, I have to think about what does Keaton like, what does Keaton not like and manage my behavior in accordance to that so that Keaton leaves that conversation thinking that I'm great. Because every interaction, there's so much at stake. When it's all about managing reputation, every interaction, every Facebook post, every picture on Instagram is about me smiling and having fun. I don't post pictures of me and my wife fighting on Facebook. (laughs) You're like, hey, look what we did last night. Oh, date night fail. (laughs) Like you don't do that. All your pictures in your house are of you smiling and having fun. They're not vacuuming, <laughs> because that's not fun. Like, I want to project something. I want to I manage my reputation. I want you to think something about me. And some of it's just, and then I'm not saying, all oh, that's wrong. I'm just saying if you default towards that, if that's where your sense of stability comes from and you couldn't bear it if somebody thought differently, then you have creeped into a religious mindset. You've gone back to the default that is, has nothing to do with faith, and that's because it's an inescapable concept. It's not a matter of whether you will be afraid of somebody's opinion. It's whose opinion are you afraid of. Is it God, who you ultimately concern yourself with? Is it his? Does his declaration of who you are matter most? Or is it Jordan? Is it Keaton? Is Is it somebody else's opinion matters to you? It's not a matter of whether that's true. It's whose opinion matters most to you. Because we're all orienting ourselves under somebody's Authority. We're all appealing to somebody to issue a declaration of, like, Matt, I think this of you. We all need somebody to say that, and who is that for you? Is it God or other? Because those are your options. And the religious mindset goes with other, because that everything there's so much at stake in all these interactions. And so Peter is at the table, and the, the people from Jerusalem come, and he wants to sit at their table now. Because he's kind of following this mantra. I don't know if you've heard this phrase or not, but it's like, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. <laughs> Have you heard that phrase before? Well, you all know that's alike, right? You, you've been in a room where you're like, I'm not leaving this room because the second I do, you're all going to talk crap about me. <laughs> you, know, you know, you nod your head, you know. If you haven't been there, you're lying to yourself. <laughs> you've been at a table where you're like, I'm not leaving this table because the second I do, they're going to say stuff about me. And Peter's like, I'm not, I don't want to be away from that table because I know that's where the junk's going to get talked about. <laughs> and that's the table I need to be at because their opinion matters most to me. And I don't want to be on their menu. If I stay with the Gentiles, they're having me for dinner. They're going to roast me. So I need to go sit with them because I need to keep myself safe. And that's the safest place for me to be, which is why religion always produces hypocrisy. It can't help but produce hypocrisy. If what you do is determined by what other people think, it will change from scenario to scenario. The only outcome is that you have to be a hypocrite because you're always changing and managing because it's your opinion that matters to me most. And whoever that is is whoever you happen to be around. So it has to change because it, it can only produce hypocrisy. It's the only option that can even happen. And listen, if this can happen to Peter, If it can happen to the whole region of Galatia, this wasn't, remember, this wasn't written to a church, it was written to the churches of a whole area, and if this can happen to Peter and to a whole region, we would be foolish to assume that we're somehow removed from it. Oh, 2,000 years have gone by, we're so mature now, that probably won't be our problem. Have you looked around, like, are we really, we're, we're just so great, look at us all loving each other. Look at social media, look at the news, we're just, we're so evolved from them, those barbarians, (laughs) are you kidding me? Like if that's your thought process, you are dead wrong. (laughs) And I will oppose you to your face (laughs) if you think that we are not better than these people. The same conditions and things that plague them are the same things that have affected all people for all time and religion and that desire to be justified in our own eyes or in the eyes of our peers runs deep. And if it can happen to Peter, it could happen to us, so be on guard, be humble, sit down. If that's the case for all of us, yeah, Jeremy, you got it. <laughs> that one's for the salt crowd. Other people, don't worry about it, don't look it up. Um, if that's the, so if that's the case for all of us, if that's the case for all of us, is there any hope for any of us? <laughs> like, if, if that can happen to Peter, if that's the case, that we default towards religion and it even happened to Peter, is there any hope for any of us? Glad you asked. We have more verses. That's great. (laughs) We just left off there. Bad news. Verses 15 through 20. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Did we have a moral advantage growing up as Jews? Yes. We had the law. We knew right from wrong. We knew our left hand from our right. That's an advantage. But does that save me? No. My kids have an advantage. They have a mom and dad who love each other, who are married for 10 years, who teach them about Jesus. Do my kids have an advantage over kids who don't have that? Yes. Does that save them? No. So listen, like Paul is telling Peter, we have a moral advantage. Yes, like we know what the law was, but is that where we put our hope? We know better. Why are you acting like it doesn't? Why are you acting like being a church kid is what saves you? Some of us need to repent of our churchianity. Like we think because we grew up in the church and we know the Lord's prayer that that somehow saves us. Now, it is an advantage to know those things. It keeps you out of certain troubles. It did for me. The fear of God kept me from doing some stuff that I wanted to do, but my heart wanted to do them. I just feared God enough to not do them. I didn't love God. I just feared Him enough because I grew up in an area of town where we were all Christians, and so it would have been in the newspaper if I didn't. And I didn't want other people to know that I wanted to do those things, but I did still. I still wanted to. I just didn't want people to know that. And so that's what. He's getting at here by uh, pointing this out to, I I feel like this is, they don't put it in quotes, but I feel like this is part of Paul's continuing uh, message to Peter himself as he's unpacking this. And so he's saying, church kids, have an advantage. It's good that your mom and dad love you, teach about Jesus, but we know that doesn't save Peter. You know that doesn't save. It's faith in Jesus alone. And, And he points that out by using, you saw the word justified four times, and you saw works of the law three times. And he wants to hit those against each other no one can work their way to being declared right with God. And if you saw there he says we are only justified in God's eyes by Christ by being in him. And I love verse 19 through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. Religion should lead you to repent of your religion. Like, if, you're, if you see the world through being a good person, eventually it should lead you to enough despair that you throw the whole system out. They're like, this isn't working. And, and Paul just comes to the natural, supernatural conclusion that this isn't working anymore. It can't do what I want it to do. Only Jesus can save me. I surrender all. And the last thing to throw overboard is your goodness. If you're in a boat and it's going down, you throw out the, the stuff that's not worth anything first to try and save the boat. But if, if, if it comes to a matter of life and death, you throw the best stuff out last. But Paul's saying, are you willing to throw your goodness off the boat in order to save the ship? Because it is the only thing that will save you <laughs> is throwing off even your goodness and trusting in Jesus alone. And he used that phrase, in Christ, four times, six times if you count in the Son of God and with Christ as being so the same concept. That is the theme that he wants to develop. You are only declared good in God's sight by you being in Christ and Christ being in you. That is how you are saved. Put yourself in him and now live life with him in you. So one last question I want to tackle with the remaining verses. So if what I do doesn't matter, then what doesn't matter what I do, right? Anybody, anybody have that thought occur to them? <laughs> like, so you're saying what I do doesn't matter, That sounds like a get out of jail free card. That sounds pretty good. I like this gospel thing. Like why would all these religious people be so upset about it? That sounds like a really good arrangement. You mean I get to do whatever I want? Let me propose to you that that question, if that occurred to you, is because we default to religion. The very very fact that you would ask that question shows that you're only interested in doing good things if it counts for you. You don't care if it counts for God's glory. If it doesn't save me anymore, why would I even do it? That's an unregenerated heart that's asking that question. The old part of you, the sinful part of you is the part that says, what does it matter anymore? Because the heart that loves God knows the answer to that question. What does it matter what I do? Because Jesus is awesome. And I want people to think he's awesome. And I want to tell people about him because that's what I actually think. And that's what I want other people to actually believe. It doesn't matter that my works don't earn me heaven That's not what I'm after. God's already purchased heaven for me. Fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you a kingdom. You don't have to build it. You don't have to find it. You don't have to make it. He has a kingdom. He wants to give to you. Because of that, you live out of that. Last two verses, 20 and 21. So what do we do? In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. God just doesn't beam you up to heaven the second you're converted. I don't know if you've noticed that. Either that or we're all unconverted. (laughs) But God saves Christians and leaves us here to do work, not because we're earning heaven, but because we're spreading the news of his glory, and we're living in a way that shows that we actually care, because we can nullify grace in two ways, and this is what I'll end with for you. You can nullify grace, which is essentially cancel it out. You can cancel out grace by saying that what Jesus did doesn't bridge the gap. It's not enough. Remember, Stan mentioned that week one, Jesus plus. You kill grace if you do that, because now it's back on works. But you can also nullify grace if you say it doesn't matter. Jesus died for everything, so I'm going to do whatever I want. You make nothing of the cross if you act that way. If your heart's Response is Jesus paid it all, so I'm gonna do whatever I feel like. You ruin the message of the cross. You you tarnish the, the hard work that Jesus did on your behalf by belittling it to the point of saying it's meaningless to my Tuesday afternoon. It matters for Sunday from 9:45 to 10 to 11:15. but what does it matter if Jesus died at Wednesday at 2 in the afternoon? Does it does would Jesus have had to have died for your Thursday morning? If he didn't, you are nullifying the grace of the gospel. And God wants to turn our hearts to that. Paul, that's the point of this letter. Next week, he's going to pick up on another stream of argument. But just know, your default is religion. And if you take your eyes off of Jesus, that's where your heart turns. So in response this morning, let us fix our eyes on the founder and perfecter of our faith and put faith in him. Normally, we would respond in communion, but because of space constraints, We're just going to (laughs) pray. So I want you to um, close your eyes and pray with me this morning. Lord, thank you for having mercy on people like us who make little of the big things you have done in our lives. Thank you for having mercy on those who would call out. Um, I feel like Peter's best prayer he ever uttered was when he was sinking to the bottom of a lake and said, Lord, save me. It's a short, simple prayer, but it says everything about who I am, who you are, and what you can do, and how we gain access to it. Lord, I pray that the cry of hearts this morning would be to repent of religion, that it would produce despair that then seeks resolution by throwing the whole system out the door. Uh, A faith that is so profound and deep that it even throws our best works, all my blue ribbons, all my trophies out the side of the ship because they don't matter anymore. You are what matters. And I pray that that hope, that freedom would produce more good works, not less, that it would produce the fuel, the fire to go out and tell people about a God who is that good and that it would give us rest. We would sleep well at night knowing that Jesus paid it all and that it's in him alone that we're saved, but that that would be fuel and incentive because out of actual love, out of a new heart that actually wants God's name to be glorified and doesn't care about our reputation before people anymore. It's not about what people think, it's about God's glory. And I pray we would devote our lives wholeheartedly to making much of him, amen.